The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, this is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have touched on over the past uh, year, certainly, and probably extending before that, is the changing pattern in archaeological education and archaeological applications. There is a pragmatic orientation now in archaeology that really never existed before. I mean, uh, traditional pedagogy and educational pathways were certainly directed more towards the research end of everything. And the um, transition to more applied aspects of archaeology is a phenomenon, a phenomenon as we've discussed, over the pa- that, that has taken root over the past 30 years. And one of the topics that has emerged as very, very critical in this day and age, especially in, an area of, in areas of conflict and in areas of uh, logistical difficulty in terms of doing archaeology is the entire question of antiquities theft and, in a broader sense, antiquities ethics. Now, we have had a couple of programs that have dealt with these topics in a general way, and we've also discussed them more specifically insofar as they related to areas of the world where this type of illicit activity in antiquities is is prevalent, specifically in the Mediterranean basin, in parts of Mesoamerica, and uh, in the American Southwest, where artifacts are considered uh, very, very valuable. Obviously, they have uh, street market value, and uh, we've also discussed the general question of how museums have, in a sense, in many ways, been complicit in illicit uh, antiquities trade. However, one of the interesting elements of all of this is now we are developing training programs that are oriented specifically to these types of issues and that are training professionals who are familiar with uh, the um, illicit trade in artifacts and and in archaeological um, elements of areas of antiquity 
And my guest today is one of the uh, premier authorities on this matter, and this is uh, Dr. Mered Kersel, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at DePaul University, and she is affiliated with the Center for Art, Museum, and Cultural Heritage Law at DePaul. Her work is involved with archaeological, archival, and ethnographic research, and she looks at cultural heritage law in protecting archaeological landscapes. She has published extensively on this and has uh, written two books, uh, U.S. Cultural Diplomacy and Archaeology, Soft Power, Hard Heritage, and another volume entitled Archaeologies of Text, Archaeology, Technology, and Ethics. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kersel to the program. Thank you for appearing Thank you so much for having me today. I'm I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk to you. Well, let's start, if we can, with how you got into this particular facet of archaeology and specifically what your career pathway was that uh, put you in that situation. I love it when people ask me this question because I really have had a very unusual, diverse pathway to my current profession so I'm always happy to talk about it. I started out as a classics undergraduate, and I did my first foreign dig. Uh, it was actually an archaeological survey in Crete, and that was many, many years ago. Uh, and then I went on to do a master's in Near Eastern archaeology. I was very interested in the archaeology of the Middle East, and I grew up in Canada, and so I did um, my master's at the University of Toronto, and I had some great opportunities to work in Jordan and in Israel at the time. But, you know, life takes you down many paths, and I was a great path when I met my husband on one of those projects very early on, and he was a graduate student at the University of Texas uh, at Austin, and we couldn't afford to both go to school. So I uh, worked while he finished his PhD, and I worked in an archive, and I learned... Uh, you know, the skill of uh, research, archival research, which w proved to be very useful later in life. After he finished his PhD, I went back to school, and I, while I am true to my profession, a field archaeologist, I really love digging and surveying and being out in the field. I wasn't sure if I would get a job, which many, I'm sure your listeners are always wondering, especially student listeners, mm -hmm. I tell my students the same thing. So I did a master's in historic preservation at the University of Georgia, which was much more applied, and it was an advocacy program where we did a lot of um, public outreach with local communities, and that gave me this amazing grounding in how to uh, conduct interviews and do ethnographies with people. But it was completely, it was about the built environment. It was not so much about archaeology. But I wrote my master's thesis on the program on archaeological law and how it affects the average archaeologist. And they were very kind to me and gave me a lot of latitude and let me look a lot at um, cultural heritage law, mostly, not just built environment. And from that master's, I went on to work for the U.S. Department of State in the Cultural Heritage Office as a contractor. And I worked there for three years as support staff to the Cultural Property Advisory Committee, but also I administered the Ambassador's Fund for Cultural Preservation, which is a multi-million dollar pot of money that ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors throughout the world in less developed nations 
give to projects in those nations to support cultural heritage preservation. And now, there, was there a program? Was there a program at Georgia for this at the time? Uh, uh, no, at Georgia, I crafted my own project uh, program. Right. I was in the Historic Preservation Masters, which is mostly about Southern architecture in the built environment. But I took classes in various places and had. Um, very accommodating and understanding professors who allow me to sort of um, make my own path there as well, which was great. I mean, they really gave me a lot of latitude, which I um, am forever grateful for. And then working for three years at State, I really, you know, I was a contractor with them. I didn't actually work for them, but uh, working on their various projects made me realize that I really am a field archaeologist, and I miss <laughs> I miss the field, and I miss the dirt. And from state, I went to study with the Illicit Antiquities Research Center at the University of Cambridge in England. And I like to call those my Harry Potter years. Uh Very Harry Pottery. Um, But that center, which was under the aegis of Colin Renfrew and Neil Brody, two of the leading experts in the illegal trade in antiquities, was a great fit for me because I had, in my work at the State Department, helped with the Cultural Advisory Committee, um, which is the committee that acts as the oversight of a series of memorandum of understanding between the United States and various countries to protect against the illegal or uh, import of archaeological artifacts. So I had grounded... On the you know hands-on experience implementing memorandum of understanding, I had great research experience from my archival work in at the University of Texas at Austin, and then I had some great interest in working in the Middle East, and those together formed my PhD topic, which was looking at the legal trade of antiquities in Israel and why and how it's legal right now for any one of us, to buy antiquities that predate their 1978 law and how we are able to bring them home to the United States or wherever else we live, and whether or not that market contributes to looting or helps solve the problem of looting. Because theoretically, if there's legally available material, then nobody should be doing illegal excavations to dig stuff up. So this was a very interesting uh, revelation on your part here. Um, wait, are you saying that it's legal to do this still, or it was? Yeah. Uh, it's still legal to yeah. do that. I, I remember there was a program on sixty Minutes about a year or two ago in which they sort of documented that trajectory, and uh, the person who had had this enormous collection in his house was sort of confused that anybody would question the ethics of that type of collection and the types of activities that he pursued. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and how extensive this trade is? Sure. Uh, So I'm sure you're speaking of um, Oded Golan, who's one of the preeminent collectors in um, the Middle East, especially Israel, and he has a very large collection, that's true. But most of it, um, I would imagine, has been acquired uh, through uh, legitimate dealers in Israel right now. There is, under their 1978 antiquities law, a series of, I think, between 30 and 45 licensed antiquity shops where 
anyone, you and I, could go in, we could purchase an artifact, we could get an export license, and we could legally bring it back here to this country. And that's, uh, you know, that's legitimate, and all of the material is legitimately available for sale in those, in those shops. But what's uh, perhaps murky or not fully understood is that when you and I go into the shop and we purchase our artifact, if we don't ask for the export license, the dealer doesn't have to offer us one. So if they don't offer us one and we didn't ask for it, we buy the artifact, we take it home, and maybe we get stopped at the border and maybe we don't, but there's no real record of the sale because the dealer has not had to contact the Israel Antiquities Authority for the export license. Well, that's what exactly what I was going to ask you because the Department of Antiquities over there has, has a lot of influence and it's, it's yep. a pretty large operation. And I guess what I'm hearing from your discussion and from your recounting of, of this trajectory is once the dealer acquires this, he doesn't need to know where it's from. Well, he needs to know possibly where it's from, but there are really no hurdles to go through for him to simply acquire it. It's, it's, it's all uh, pretty much above board to get it to his possession and then to transmit it or to sell it to another individual. Is that correct? Well, theoretically, all of the artifacts that a dealer has in, in a licensed shop in Israel available for sale should predate that 1978 collection. I see. So they should have been in the collection. But what's happening is when you and I don't ask for the export license and there's no record of the sale, and in order to get the export license, each dealer has to provide the Antiquities Authority a detailed inventory of exactly what's in their holdings. Uh-huh. But... The whole, the detailed um, item, or the you know the description could be a buff-colored oil lamp from you know the Byzantine period. That's pretty general. Yes, there are a lot of buff-colored oil lamps that look similar. Uh-huh. So if right. we didn't ask for the export license for buff-colored oil lamp number one four seven, and the dealer sells it to us he can reuse that number for artifacts that have been illegally excavated yesterday or two months ago that he acquired however or uh, however they were acquired. So that's how recently looted material is entering that market. And, I mean, I should also, in a buyer beware so situation, the caution people that there are a lot of fakes in the market as well. Well, that's, that was another point that was made on the program. And so it just seems that in this day and age with uh, a, a fair amount of attention uh, being applied to these sorts of things, and some countries are very rigorous about it, that uh, this is pretty unusual, or is it more widespread than we think in other no, it countries? No, is, it's very unusual. When I was looking for a country that had a legal market in order to test my theory that it you know, it doesn't actually combat the looting of artifacts. Uh, it, it, there are really aren't that many of them who, you know, where you can legally export or you can import artifacts into the country. So, uh, yeah, it's it it is. There are there really aren't very many of them. And it, I should also say that agencies like the. So I mean, if you talk about, yeah. 
Sorry, I was just going to say that agencies like the Israel Antiquities Authority are also, I mean, they're trying to get the law changed because it was crafted in the 1950s and 60s and then eventually enacted in 1978. And it was enacted while people like Moshe Dayan was in the Knesset or Teddy Kolick was the mayor of Jerusalem and they were both avid collectors of antiquities. Yeah, I should point out to those of you who are unfamiliar with that situation that these were major uh, soldiers and diplomats who essentially had uh, overriding access to antiquities and developed extremely large collections of their own. So I guess their personal influence affected exactly how the laws were passed and how they were enforced, right? That's very true, yeah. And we will be back with this fascinating discussion on illicit antiquities and how and where and why the trade in antiquities is changing or whether or not it is at all or uh, what the ramifications of this are. Right after these words, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Do you want to expand the legacy that you leave behind? Get the inspiration you need by hearing from others who are doing just that. Listen for Your Why with host Nelina Varinas. The show features amazing guests who have saved lives, helped others, and brought forth hope to others around them. By hearing their stories, you can make some stories of your own. Your Why can be heard every Friday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hospitality News Network for a look inside the travel, hotel, restaurant, and hospitality industry. Host Stephen Nicole and his guests will teach you everything you've wanted to know about this fascinating industry. Who knows? You might just want to change your own career path. At the very least, you might end up being a preferred customer. The Hospitality News Network is broadcast live every Monday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you- 
I am discussing illicit trade in antiquities with my guest, uh, Dr. Mirage uh, Kersel, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at DePaul University and is a specialist in illicit antiquities trade, specifically in the Mediterranean basin and in the Near East. And we were talking about a flourishing market for antiquities, exchanges and sales, and probably involving museums as well in Israel. And during the break, we were discussing the fact that there is a connection between Israel and Jordan on these antiquities. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and uh, let's talk after that about how this ties into biblical archaeology and why uh, that type of uh, antiquities trade is so popular and probably uh, profitable for many people. Sure. So uh, one of the avenues that I'm researching at the moment is uh, I am conducting a project in Jordan, uh, well, actually, it's worldwide, but it's based in Jordan, called Follow the Pots, and I work on this with Meredith Chesson from the University of Notre Dame, and we're interested in early Bronze Age ceramics from sites along the Dead Sea Plain that may or may not be associated to the biblical sites of the cities of the plain that are mentioned in Genesis. This one of our sites at Baba Dra has also been identified by some as a potential correlate to biblical Sodom. So these sites along the Dead Sea Plain in Jordan, have, uh, there are four or five of them, have all been extensively looted. And we are interested in why people have dug things up, where the artifacts that have been dug up are going, and if they are going into the marketplace, why people want to own them. Because they're actually, I mean, we love them. They're near and dear to our hearts, but they're not amazing. They're not, you know, they're not that sophisticated. They're um, handmade or um, slow wheel made, and they are maybe painted, but not always painted, and they're pretty crude. And so we're always wondering, why would anybody want to own this? Mm-hmm. So we're in- yeah, I mean, they're really just not that attractive. <laughs> but, um, but they're And they're very... probably also pretty widespread, no? Yeah, I mean, those pots, those particular kinds of pots, only appear at those sites, and they often only appear in the graves at those sites. Mm-hmm. So they're burial goods that in their first lives, they were grave goods buried with our ancient ancestors. There have been systematic excavations carried out there by people like um, Paul Lapp in the 1960s, and then in the 70s and 80s, people like um, Walt Rast and Tom Schaub and Dave McCreary. So we have, uh, and Mohammed Najjar from the Department of Antiquities in the 2000s. So we have uh, great archaeological evidence for exactly how people were buried. Uh, so we have comparisons because the sites are really heavily looted now, it's great that we have had at least some archaeological excavation there. So we have them as excavated artifacts, but they have another life as a looted artifact and then a final life as a collected artifact. Interesting. And so we've tried to follow these, you know, different lives that they've led, and we do this both through archaeology, through survey and excavation, but we also do a lot of ethnographies. 
So we, I spend a lot of my days talking to all of the people who are, have a vested interest in the movement of these materials. So archaeologists, locals, looters, dealers, museum people, government employees, lawyers, conservators, anyone who's interested in these artifacts. And so the bulk, while I profess to be and, you know, claim to be this field archaeologist, the bulk of my research some days is just interviewing people. I spend a lot of time in Jerusalem's old city talking to the, you know, tourists who are buying things. I spend a lot, you know, I spent two years ago, I spent a year in Jordan uh, living at the American Center for Oriental Research with one of their generous grants, researching there, interviewing people in the local area who collect or um, people who are looting and the government and how... Uh, agencies and how they're dealing with this and what kind of programs they're trying to enact to stop looting or lessen it. And hopefully in the end, uh, you know, all of this research and data comes together and we can figure out how better to protect these landscapes, which are currently under threat. So how does the situation in Jordan vary and contrast with the situation in Israel, where in Israel, as, as a lot of people do know, some don't, um, there is a long tradition of biblical archaeology. It's a, it's a major in, in the universities, and it's uh, very well established. I've worked in Israel and Jordan quite a bit. In Jordan, it's not quite that cut and dry. I mean, they're starting to develop programs in, in archaeology. How is the, shall we say, the infrastructure of the looting world and the antiquities world, how does that work in Jordan, say, in contrast to what's, what's going on in Israel? Well, I would say, I mean, you're right to point all those things out, but uh, I would say in both places, you know, for any archaeologist, it is a threatened site and a landscape that's um, currently under destruction that's of great importance in in order to try and um, stop that and to figure out how best to deal with, you know, the compromise information we might be getting from a looted landscape, this right. is first and foremost for, you know, both the governmental agencies, but academic archaeologists or the average person actually also is very concerned about the destruction of the landscape. But what's really different between Israel and Jordan is in Jordan, it's illegal. The law pro- prohibits the sale of antiquities. So you can't buy antiquities in Jordan. But in Israel, as I mentioned before, you can at a licensed shop buy antiquities that come from a pre-1978 collection. Mm-hmm. But I noticed when I was doing my research in Israel that some of the material for sale there was from these sites, these early Bronze Age sites along the Dead Sea Plain. And so part of the focus of our Follow the Pots research is to try to figure out how those artifacts are growing from the ground to the consumer in Israel and what kind of pathways they're taking along the way to get there. So that's where interviewing all these different individuals and agencies comes in where I talk to a looter who may have dug something up and wonder how it goes from that person to, as they told me, big black cars from Amman come and buy the <laughs> artifacts. And right. then how do then those artifacts in the big black cars get across the border 
into the shops, perhaps using the same sort of exchange of registry numbers that I mentioned earlier, where a buff-colored early Bronze Age pot, one looks the same as the next. So if you didn't ask for the export license, maybe you're getting something that was looted yesterday rather than something that was in that collection in 19... that predated 1978. So, so let me ask you another question in that connection. So the big black car, is that, that, that sort of a common pathway to, to, to move these artifacts around? That's what they tell me. Okay, and, you know, <laughs> and those big black cars are going yeah, across the Allenby Bridge? And I don't think the black cars are going to cross the Allenby Bridge. I do believe that the artifacts are, but I have no, I only have anecdotal conversations with people about the artifacts, how they're actually getting across the border. Well, that's so, an intriguing question. That's yeah. really an intriguing question because those border crossings can be very tricky. They can be, and they're very heavily patrolled, and, you know, they do check everything. Absolutely. But my understanding is that sometimes artifacts are in diplomatic pouches, which when mm. I started this, I thought a diplomatic pouch was a diplomat's briefcase. It can be a shipping container. Of course. Right. And you know, dip, so that they have immunity from search and seizure. So of course, there are, yeah. Yeah, materials going across, or UN aid trucks. Mm-hmm. And you know, okay. these materials travel, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, not just in the Middle East, but these materials travel in the same uh, illegal networks as the trade in people, so the movement, you know, um, and drugs and uh, arms. So, I was going to say that, you know, yeah. They're not creating new networks, they're just, and it's just another element in already existing illegal networks of getting things across borders. So, so getting back to the question of, for lack of a better word, the popularity of biblical age. Um, artifacts, and you're talking about early Bronze Age, anything that's sort of third millennium BC and subsequent. Um, Are we talking about a market that is dominated by any particular group? I mean, I would imagine that certain fundamentalist people, uh, especially from the West, would prize these types of artifacts because they would conform to some kind of a theory of uh, of uh, Judeo-Christianity that uh, is near and dear to their hearts, and they would value these items for a variety of different reasons, not necessarily to trade them in the antiquities market, but because they have strong atta- attachment to the Bible, and they would use this type of information as proof of their own beliefs in, 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 uh, in, in religious systems. Do you see some of that going on as well? You know, one of my the favorite parts of this research for me is talking to people in Jerusalem or wherever who are buying antiquities, why they want to own these things. Uh-huh. And I cannot tell you how many times I have heard that they buy things the way perhaps people... I have a tacky fridge magnet collection, so I buy a fridge magnet from anywhere I visited. And uh-huh. so people buy artifacts as memento of their visit. Sure. But in asking, you know, why they're buying these things, I often ask, well, would a replica suffice? Because there are little cottage industries that make 
um, replica oil lamps or pots, and they're from the Holy Land. They were, okay, made, you know, recently, but they are from the Holy Land. And you know, for most of these people, and generally, as you suggest, it is mostly religious pilgrims, because a lot of the shops are located on the Via Dolorosa in the Old right. City. So That's the, what I was going to say. That's right. Areas of high tourist traffic. This is the bulk of the sales. A replica does not cut it, because there is no chance that someone from the Bible or Jesus was near it or touched it. Right. So everybody wants something that may have that tangible biblical connection. Right. Authenticity. That's right. And what I've noticed, you know, I've been doing this research for almost um, 15 years now. And in the past Uh 10 years, what I've noticed is a change in the marketing strategy in the old city dealers. Early Bronze Age pots, as you suggest, were once labeled as, you know, from 3600 to 3000 BC. Well, now they always have a descriptor that says, from the age or the time of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Right. Abraham and Sarah. Those names are always associated with those pots so that there is that biblical tie-in. So they're cultivating that relationship between uh, a direct relationship with with the Bible, with the Old Testament, and so that people who are interested in this sort of thing will have a very clear understanding of where this came from and what it means and how it signifies some kind of uh, importance in in their own religious belief and doctrines. Exactly, and that's exactly. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I. I never really considered that that was the only reason or the main reason that people were buying these things, but I really, there is no way that I, it's the only reason people are buying these things. It's the proximity to, you know, it's this reminder and this mnemonic where at your house, you can have this on your mantelpiece, and people can look at it, and you can be reminded of that moment you were in the Holy Land. It's probably sort of reflecting a trend in a lot of Western countries to a more fundamentalist perspective on religion and the icons associated with that, and it's probably a sign of the times. I would agree, and it's also, what also is a sign of the times is that now people of that persuasion or who are interested in those pots for those reasons don't even have to travel to the Holy Land because the Internet has changed the sale of these materials dramatically. Tell us about that. So right now, any one of us could go on eBay and you could type in early Bronze Age pot and I guarantee four or five of the pots that I've described from the Dead Sea Plain in Jordan will pop up and they will be for sale from anywhere from $12 to $200. So you at home in your jammies don't even have to leave the comfort (laughs) of your home can purchase your own pot from the time of Abraham that speaks to you because you're interested in the Old Testament or, uh, you know, an artifact from the New Testament that you then can possess that has a tangible connection to the Holy Land, even though you haven't been there. 
But, you know, this is a long, this has been the trade and relics for generations since the time of Constantine and Helena, you know, where the people were always trading in Holy Land materials and there were always things that were brought back to churches because not everyone could travel to the Holy Land and that's why we have relics the way we do in many um, religious institutions throughout the world. And we'll be back with this very fascinating discussion on the antiquities trade with my guest, uh, Dr. Morag Kersel from DePaul University, right after these words, don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest on today's program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, is Dr. Mirag Kersel, and she's discussing uh, cultural heritage law and specifically the illicit antiquities trade in the Middle East. And we've been uh, sort of looking and exploring fascinating topics of the trajectories from how artifacts get from an excavated site to dealers, to the general public, and ultimately into the hands of 
collectors and the museums museums themselves. What I'm interested in is uh, you seem to be a pioneer in in, in sort of uh, working in along these lines of archaeology and. Um, and artifact analysis and the study of the pathways of artifact uh, artifacts moving around and obviously overlapping with some very serious uh, legal implications as well. What uh, types of programs are there out out right now in uh, North America and elsewhere where people who are interested in these questions can go pursue a career like this? This is, thanks so much for asking this, Joe, because this is really a great uh, avenue of research, and there just aren't enough of us doing it. There are very few people on the ground looking at artifacts, going from the ground to the consumer in all areas of the world. And, and I think that's reflected in that there are very few places where you can actually go and study this. And I have had people in the past say to me, wow, you're going to get a PhD on that topic? That's fascinating. (laughs) So so right now, I think, you know, you would perhaps go into a traditional anthropology or archaeology program. So I did my PhD in England, which was in an archaeology department. But I now work in an applied anthropology program. So I think that there are opportunities for people, uh, for students and people who are interested in this to carry out research like this. But you might have to take some coursework that leads you down other paths but in the end, it's all very helpful when it comes to writing up your dissertation and carrying out your field research. But I would say one of the pioneering places at the moment to do this kind of research is with the trafficking culture people at the University of Glasgow. So I worked with Neil Brody, who really is one of the true pioneers in this field, at the University of Cambridge. And he is now at Glasgow with and, and has a number of students, and he has a program there with Simon McKenzie, who's a criminologist, and Donna Yates, who's an archaeologist, who's also doing research like this in Central and South America and Nepal. So they are looking at it more from a criminological standpoint than perhaps I did, because I come, I was, you know, I came at it from an archaeological anthropological standpoint. But that's one place. There are also a lot of um, great summer programs that you can do both in archaeological heritage law and in cultural heritage protection. But to actually do a program like this, I think still the U.K. is the place to go because the U.S. is, um, you know, perhaps at Simon Fraser in Canada, you can do a program like this or the University of Calgary. But in the U.S., maybe the University of Southern Florida, I'm not sure. It would really be about working with a specific individual rather than a particular program. Well, I think part of the problem here, certainly in the States, is that uh, our anthropology umbrella, which should actually embrace this sort of thing, doesn't really deal with that. I mean, this is especially in the area of uh, specialized antiquities, with the Near East being obviously the major one, Um, uh, an archaeology program along the lines of a a European-style operation Mm -hmm. like in the UK, the Germany, or to some degree even France, uh, those types of programs seem to be 
more oriented towards it in Canada as well because uh, because they have more of an archaeological perspective than than the larger umbrella that we use here as for for anthropology to branch out into so maybe that's a part of it the other question that I would have for you however and this is tricky and very very sensitive is a lot of these excavations are sponsored by organizations who for lack of a better word word have questionable associations with the illegal antiquities market hmm and that's probably something that you've heard a little bit about. I mean, you have people who have made their money and, and uh, you have museums who are to some degree were complicit in this and they run these projects. And we had a program uh, a few months ago where we were starting to question, well, what is the museum actually doing right now? I know that in the past 20 years, they've basically fessed up. That uh, that you know, in the early part of the 20th century, there was uh, there was so much smuggling going out, especially places like India and Peru, ending up in museums, which in turn sponsored excavations. That's not going on anymore, correct? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, m- you know, most museums, and I have to say, also a lot of collectors have really taken on board, you know, the current crises in the Middle East and are not buying material from that area or not acquiring material, people have become a lot more savvy and considered in their purchases. And really, one of the most interesting things that I think I've learned over the last 10 years of interviewing people about collecting material is that the collecting of archaeological material is not going away. I mean, we may be able to uh, lessen it and, you know, make people um, more sophisticated, better collectors, but it's not going to stop. It's been going on for thousands of years, and it's going to continue to go on. There is no way that you can tell someone that they shouldn't buy something that they think is from the time of Jesus. And that is a quote I hear often, something from the time of Jesus. That's what they want. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's Roman stuff, and that's everywhere. That's right, and it's everywhere. And um, what I think we need to do is figure out how best to protect the sites that are currently threatened, either in times of conflict, uh, you know, because it's a, um, there's a lot of unrest and conflict, or if it's just under threat because it's got Roman material or it's got biblical material, or for whatever reason, anywhere else in the world, it's under threat. We have to figure out how to make a better collector. And, a more well, con- and that includes, I, I'm, and I mean institutional collectors as well as individual collectors. Right, right. But I and really do think that the institutional collectors are, um, have stepped up and have, uh, you know, have changed their acquisition policies and are much more considered in whatever they are acquiring. The other issue, of course, which we've touched upon and you've certainly uh, skirted on it, around it uh, and, and probably know a lot about it more, a lot more about it than we do, is this whole question of the contemporary scene right now. I mean, with things like mm-hmm. ISIS, the Iraq War, I mean, the uh, insurgents are just drawn to these sites uh, because, A, they represent something that's on the order of an apostate, and they also know that they can profit from them. And so this becomes a huge industry that is built on the blood of people. And how do That's we deal right. with that? 
How do and we that's do? really where we have to, um, you know, make more efforts in curbing demand and making a more sophisticated collector that asks for proof of uh, archaeological provenance and the date that the material came out of the country so that no one is buying anything that came out of Iraq post-2003 or that is right. coming out of Syria currently. I mean, that should be our ultimate goal for all of these agencies and for all these archaeologists who work in that area, that we, you know, we work together in order to come up with a plan or a way to make this an anathema, you know, to shame people into not buying antiquities or artifacts that have any kind of taint associated with them. And now you're talking about things that are really critical because as unfortunate as as it is and probably will be in the next few years, there will be a demand for people who have that kind of knowledge base that you have to go into these areas that have been looted and to do inventories and to work with people who live in these war zones to help them understand and to guide them in procedures for defending sites and for making sure as much as they can that these artifacts do not get looted and that if uh, if necessary, they get protected in such a way as they're shielded as best as possible from falling into the wrong hands. And I would suggest that our anthropology and archaeology departments have to open extremely significant programs to allow this to happen. Are you seeing any of that going on? Are, are the university programs starting to be tuned into the fact that this is a pragmatic and, in fact, important way of turning archaeology into something to, uh, that's very, very applied and appropriate? It's interesting. I haven't seen it on the ground, uh, you know, in departments or, yeah, I have not seen it. But I'd be interested in the next couple of years if there is a sea change in that, you know, academic units actually decide that heritage or focusing on cultural heritage is of, uh, you know, great importance and they should have a stream where you could be a biological archaeologist or you can be a cultural anthropologist. You can also be a cultural heritage specialist all under the umbrella of anthropology. Absolutely. And I think it's more important now than ever because uh, we are seeing these sites disappear. We're seeing provenience and context be completely dissociated from artifacts themselves. And any kind of synthetic pictures that we want to put together and uh, try to incorporate into the broader knowledge base is being compromised. What in particular are you working on right now? So right now, one of the amazing things that I'm doing is I'm working with a local nonprofit in Jordan called the Petra National Trust, and we have developed a hands-on activity workshop for young men and women. They have separate days where they come, and we spend the day talking about why looting stops us from learning about Petra. And as part of that program... We are talking to people, you know, we are working with the students um, to develop uh, ideas on how to protect archaeological sites, why looting matters, what artifacts can tell us about the past, and they do their own ethnographies with tourists and with shopkeepers within the Petra Park, and they talk to people about what they're buying and why they're buying and if they're buying, and so you get a more holistic picture, and this is part of our Follow the Pots project in that it, um, you know, it is one of the 
perhaps programs that might stop looting at a site if you, you know, work with folks when they're younger in order to, you know, work together on figuring out why artifacts and archaeology matters. Because I think we as a discipline haven't done an amazing job of getting our point across. And I think that's reflected in our academic structure in that there are no programs in cultural heritage because we can't really articulate well why it matters. And that's a real tragedy of our time because it's staring us in the face. Yeah. I think that's true. And there's never been a time where it hasn't been truer. And this has been true in Central and South America for years as well. I mean, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. It's not just about the Near East because there are also sites under threat and artifacts that have moved around all over the world, Cambodia, Southeast Asia, all kinds of places. But if we work, if we're better about getting our message across as a discipline about why these things matter and why sites matter to local populations as well as collectors, perhaps we can make inroads into getting people to stop buying unprovenienced material. And the other area of overlap clearly is the law profession and the legalistics of all of this. And you would imagine that there is a fruitful career out there for somebody who wants to merge the legal profession with the antiquities operations and uh, studies in anthropology and archaeology that overlap very strongly and have very broad ramifications on the uh, international scene, certainly. That's true. And actually, that's where I have seen an uptick in scholarly programs. And you can now, like with our own center here at DePaul for uh, Cultural Heritage and Museums, there are more and more programs, law programs across the country and in North America in general that are offering classes or concentrations in art law and um, cultural heritage kinds of things. So that really is a place where there has been an uptick. And you're seeing people being recruited into these programs as well, right? I'm not sure if they're being recruited in or if they are just self-sourcing and applying to them. Yes, but they are finding them, that's for sure. And I field a lot of uh, inquiries from students, especially around this time because all the applications are due, um, from various students who are interested in these programs. And what what about in the host countries where some of these antiquities are being found, like in Jordan and in uh, places along the Maghreb coast and Greece and and places like that, which provide the antiquities? And uh, is is there an awareness there as well? There is, actually. And that's uh, interesting because in in North America, in our own anthropology programs, we are not, you know, um, stepping up and having cultural heritage programs. But in places like Jordan and in Greece, Cyprus, all these places where people, um, PhDs who may have uh, gone, Jordanians who have gotten a PhD in Europe have come back and they're introducing these programs in country. And there really is, you know, a, a big swell of archaeological academics in those areas. And they're focused on all of this, I would imagine, not, not right. just as, as being members of the host country, but also following the path- pathways, because that's ultimately uh, the important issue is where it ends up and, and how to uh, prevent it from getting outside of the country in many ways. That's true. And, you know, because that's part of the problem is... or. Part of the issue is getting all these different stakeholders in the same area. So you want to coordinate with 
Customs and Border Control. At the same time, you want to coordinate with the Department of Antiquities and the academic departments and the local people. So, you know, it's this whole cycle that you have to sort of bring together on the common goal of protecting the archaeological landscape. Uh, How does this future look? I actually am... The future looks good. I mean... I can't speak for civil unrest and war right, in countries, right, of course. but from an academic perspective and from a perspective of um, local populations caring about their past, it looks really good in places like Jordan, Israel, Palestine, where I do most of my work. And I want to thank you. Our hour has come to an end. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Marag Kersel, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at DePaul University. And we will be back next week with another program in Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Until then, I wish you a good evening and a wonderful week ahead. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.